Hi there, and welcome to this latest episode of our Brexit and Beyond podcast. And I'm delighted today to welcome Professor Bridget Laffin, Director of the Robert Schumann Centre for Advanced Studies at the European University Institute in Florence. Bridget, in case you didn't know, was ranked number 13 in the Politico Women Who Shape Brussels list. We'll get back to that later on. But she's also a very, very well-known and prolific academic uh, who has published so many books. I'm not going to go through them because I'm slightly jealous. But anyway, Bridget, welcome. A pleasure. If we can start, I mean, there are so many things we can talk about. I want to start off talking about the European Union. Let's start with the vaccine programme, shall we? I mean, what, mm-hmm. what has the vaccine programme taught us about the European Union? So I think that COVID-19, because you have to start there, is one more crisis that the EU has faced over the last 10 years. So it's been a decade of crisis, one to the other to the other. When COVID-19 emerged, as we know, this time last year, March last year, the EU member states, because they were in a panic, they hadn't prepared, they were worried about their ICU capacity, about PPE, the things that have concerned governments across the world. There was a rush to domestic solutions. But very quickly, this appeared as if it would become a beggar thy neighbour. So there was a very concerted effort, both by the Commission, but also in the Council, the European Council, to make sure that Europe did not respond to COVID in a very fragmented way. The, the, the sort of worst day was the week or weekend when the Italians asked for help under the treaties and no one responded. Never happened before, won't ever happen again. But it wasn't because of a lack of solidarity, it was just governments in panic. So then that sort of framed the next phase of how the EU would deal with COVID that the EU would try to deal with COVID together. And that, I think, greatly influenced the vaccine programme and the procurement programme, because the view was that if the EU didn't stick together, then the member states would start competing, would try to outbid each other for, for vaccines, would be in a sense that the big pharmas would take advantage. So there was, as we know, the collective procurement. Now, the question is, did the commission do a decent job or a very poor job on that? And I think I think it remains to be seen. On the face of it, the commission didn't pay enough. In other words, if it wanted supplies quickly. But on the other hand, one shouldn't, in my view, underestimate the importance of the absence of a free-for-all. Now, there has been, as we know, the Hungarians uh, are, the Hungarians are using Sputnik or the, the Russian vaccine. And there is some discussion that the Austrians and the Danes are talking to the Israelis, etc., etc. But what's interesting is, for example, in German public opinion, and the Germans had the heft to do it and go it alone, there is support for the collaborative approach. So I think one has to think of it in terms of what would have happened if this became a really nasty free-for-all. Now, the other thing I would say is that it seems to me that you need to draw a distinction between the supply issues, but then also how effectively prepared the member states are to roll out the vaccine program. So I would say I would wait until I would wait until the end of the third quarter or the year before making definitive judgments on this. That being what you said about 
Germany is all well and good, but Politico published a poll last week where they showed that 51% of Germans said the EU had handled the rollout badly. I mean, it's an isolated poll, but I suppose the bigger question is, are you worried that the pandemic and the EU's response is a bit of a gift to populists because it's relatively easy to portray this as collaboration failing? Yes and no. I mean, one had to worry about everything that one might worry about in the EU, then I suspect one one would never stop worrying. I regard these as challenges that confront different political systems in different ways. And this is just one more crisis the EU is confronting. Is it, in terms of populism, I think what we see across Europe is that populists we tend to focus on the populace, but interestingly, the the traditional parties have experienced a squeezing. They've been squeezed to the left and the right. But equally, the performance of the uh, populace has been subject to the same volatility, in my view, that democratic politics is subject to at the moment. So for me, yes, of course, uh, the, popu- the, the radical right parties will use this. But interestingly, we're doing some research that hasn't been published yet at the moment, where we're looking at the way in which political parties have framed COVID. Am I right? Five European countries. And what we're seeing is that, firstly, the framing has been predominantly positive, more positive framing than negative. And in the negative framing, the issue has not been take it back to the nation state, the nation states would do better, but rather performance. So in other words, that's appropriate. That's appropriate framing. If you think the performance is poor, then that's an appropriate way for political parties, as opposed to the ideology of back to the nation state, etc, etc. Interestingly, on the positive frames, the frame that wins, uh, and it comes particularly from the traditional parties, either in power or in opposition, is the EU is the solution. In other words, the tool for handling interdependence. Mm-hmm. And COVID has been framed in, in this way. But I was very struck by the predominance of the positive framing rather than the negative framing by political parties, because one would have expected particularly opposition parties to use this as a way to beat yeah. the beat the government. But that doesn't appear to have happened, at least in this in terms of the data we've looked at. One of the interesting things for me recently in, in, in terms of what the EU has done is that the recovery fund, and I think by any measure, the recovery fund is pretty impressive. And it spoke to a real desire to kind of avoid the sorts of core periphery or north-south dynamics that haunted the Eurozone during the crisis days. Firstly, would you agree that that was real and it will make a real impact? And secondly, are you slightly worried that if coming out of the pandemic we see as we will, an unequal economic recovery. Some countries will recover faster than others. That those sorts of distributive arguments might break out into the open again. So interestingly, I regard the Recovery and Resilience Fund as the first Brexit bonus for the for the EU. Why do I say that? I think it would be it would have been impossible for the EU to agree that a la 27, a la 28. Why do I say that? Everything I know about British attitudes towards the budgetary politics of the EU, Cameron's veto in 2011 of the fiscal treaty, the UK would have used a veto via the MFF. There would still have been an RF an RRF, but it would have been via it would have been via the Eurozone only. 
it would have involved differentiated integration. They'd have had to have gone. So for me, it the interesting dynamic was that the that group of states that ended up as the frugal four weren't strong enough to resist. And the key swing state in all of this was Germany. And I think the Germans shifted because they really did understand that uh, another bout of uh, the North-South creditor-debtor dynamic in the EU would have been extremely dangerous. So I think they just decided. Also, I think the discussion of economic policy has moved on a little in, in Berlin. I think that it, it is an important breakthrough. Can I also say that I think at the moment it's seen as a once-off? The Germans are saying this is one-off. It's to do with the symmetric shock of COVID. It's because this is a global pandemic. In my view, it's not the end. So why do I say that? I say that because the recovery fund will be repaid 2058 about. So it's going to be around a very long time. Mm. It's going to have to be repaid from the EU budget. And that can't involve, all of that can come from the national key. So in my view, in the next 10 years, there will be EU level tax, small, but significant enough to repay. Now, once you go into that territory, then you're also talking about a different EU. So I think that this is actually a profound change, albeit the impact will only emerge over the next decade. Can I also say that I think it really matters how the recovery fund is used. If it's not used well and wisely by the member states, particularly the big recipients, Spain and Italy, then it will be extremely difficult to make it into, to have some sort of common debt issuance as a permanent feature of integration. So a lot is riding on the implementation. And of course, as we come out of COVID, there will be different countries will find growth again in it, probably to different timescales. But I think that's that's inevitable. But I was it a major breakthrough? Absolutely. And could anyone in January 2020 have said the EU would actually agree to common debt by July 2020? No one would have put money on it. So we're talking on a day, we could say this for any day, basically, when there is tension between the UK government and the EU over the Northern Ireland Protocol. The UK government's announced its intentions to unilaterally extend what it's insisting on calling grace periods. The big question for me, I mean, we can get into the sort of detail afterwards, if you like. But the big question is, is it possible to make the protocol work? Let me begin by saying that there is no safe or good Brexit for the island of Ireland. This is a very major destabilising factor in the politics of that of the island. It is very dangerous. And what I'm seeing at the moment is very dangerous to see the DUP talk to the loyalist groups. And this is the UVF and UDA. That's what we're talking about. And I'm sure the British security intelligence services are making their own assessments as we speak. Frankly, the protocol has to work. There is no alternative. And every time I hear the ERG or the hard Brexiteers look to the alternative arrangements again, they just were not credible. And then the choice is it's pretty binary. You've got to put the checks somewhere, either on the sea where people don't live or on a border with 300 crossings where people do live. And this isn't an issue of Dublin, but the people who live north and south of the Irish border, Sinn Féin dominates the northern side of the border. They will simply not give their consent to any arrangements that make that border visible or problematic. And therefore, it is the danger of destabilizing the northern 
Northern Ireland fragile settlement, in my view, is very high. What's motivating the DUP and the loyalists? The the DUP very rashly supported Brexit and now find themselves under pressure in the polls. So the DUP are in a very unsettled place. And whenever the DUP are unsettled, that's not good for stability in Northern Ireland, because that strain of unionism that sees any weakening of its links to GB as problematic or as as something that they have to oppose. They started saying no long before 1912. So it's a long time. We've had this for a very long time. But in my view, the protocol has to work. Now, interestingly, I think that the UK government is being is unwise in the following sense. Its best supporter around the table on the protocol is is Dublin. And Dublin will expend a lot of diplomatic and political capital to make the protocol work in the most flexible way possible. But what happened, the most recent episode, simply puts pressure on Dublin. And Dublin will not and cannot be seen to side with London if London is acting unilaterally. So in my view, it really now has come down to the commitment of the London government to face up to the fact that Boris Johnson did agree the protocol and all this talk about foodstuffs not on the supermarket shelves in Northern Ireland, that's mythical. There is food. There are issues with the protocol, but they're not as serious as the loyalists are mobilising them to be. Uh, And I remain uncertain about the, the commitment of of London to the implementation of the protocol. What if London doesn't implement the protocol? What then? I mean, would the EU start putting infrastructure between North and South, or would member states start taking unilateral action and checking things that come from Dublin? It's impossible to tell. The worst possible outcome for the Republic is if its membership of the single market is put under pressure. And it would be, in my view, the externalising of a UK decision to the Irish state, which given the history between the two islands is a return to a very dark and not so good past. And again, I think the UK has also got to think this true in terms of its relationship with Washington. Ireland has lots of friends in Washington and will mobilise them. And if the UK is seen to be bullying an EU member state, albeit a small one, that's not a good look for for global Britain. So a lot depends on how London wants to be seen in the world as a state post-Brexit. And it's got to be careful that it doesn't push this in a direction where it destabilizes the island of Ireland. If it destabilizes the island of Ireland, certainly the Americans will be very upset. So there has to be some calculation in London about how they played it. Bridget, this is fascinating. We're going to take a quick break now and we'll be back in a few minutes. Hello there. I'm Katie Hayward, Senior Fellow for UK and a Changing Europe specialising in Northern Ireland and Brexit, based at Queen's University in Belfast. Apologies for interrupting, but seeing as you're here, I thought you might be interested in signing up to our newsletter, which is now weekly. You can keep up to speed by going to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk. See you there. Just coming on to onto your, your day job and your own personal role, what is, what is the remit, what is the mission of the Schumann Centre in Florence? 
So the Robert Schumann Center was set up in the early 1990s as the first academic unit at the EUI after the convention. In other words, the four academic departments. And it was set up because it was felt that the the academic departments, the key social science departments, were not engaging in what was happening in the so-called real world. In other words, it was set up to be policy outreach, engagement with the world of practice, multidisciplinary research, interdisciplinary research. And it was a way of adding another layer to the EUI so that it wasn't simply seen as a place, beautiful buildings in the hills around Fiesole. But of course, the fundamental mission of Schumann is research. And then the engagement with the world of practice flows from that. How easy is it to do that kind of engagement and impact work from a hillside in Florence? I mean, it's not where the policymakers are, is it? No. And if it were a think tank, then one would have to be in a capital or in Brussels. But in fact, it turns out it's it's easy. Why? Because so we have a Middle East directions program, uh, which is doing a lot of primary research on Syria and Libya. So as you can imagine, the EAS and national foreign ministries are very interested in this. And my colleagues who work on that, they produce policy briefs, they do policy dialogues. So our model is to mix academics and practitioners in that outreach place. We also have visiting fellows from various international organizations or institutions. So it's that in in the Florence School of Regulation, the big utilities, again, they come. And one of the things I discovered since I went to Florence in 2013 is that those hills outside Florence in Fiesole have great convening power. People like to go there. Now, I want to come on briefly to the sort of, in a sense, the distinction between being an active academic and being an activist. As you know, Vernon Bogdanor once described you as a, one of a set of Irish nationalist academics. Firstly, what did you make of his claim? And there's an FT piece you wrote, which people can read if they want to see it in more detail. But secondly, do you think it is important for academics who have a voice to be impartial in these debates? So I think the first thing to say is we're academics, but we're also citizens. So I have every right on the basis of my own knowledge to engage in the public realm as a citizen. One doesn't, in terms of impartiality, I think one has to be extremely careful with that because what does impartiality mean? All of us, there's no value-free social science. We all carry our values. What we've got to be as social scientists is aware of our underlying, the assumptions we carry, and also be very clear on where we're coming from and work from the basis of the evidence as we see. So I've never, I've always been slightly concerned. So what do you do, for example, in where there's a clear clash between what the evidence says and what some political actors are saying? Now, as an academic, if you engage with what those people are saying or the views they hold, is that activism or is it simply engagement with the issues as you see? During the referendum, what surprised me most about the British Brexit referendum was the extent to which most, no, I I need to be careful here. 
a lot of the discourse on the EU was simply wrong. Now, if you're an academic, do you stand impartially by and say, well, that's not my problem? Or do you enter into the debate? I suppose for me, impartiality means you absolutely have to put forward the evidence. So, you know, as an organisation, we have we have no problem at all saying these are the economic impacts that the forecasts predict from Brexit over the short to medium term. And they're negative. I suppose what we wouldn't say, therefore, is you know, therefore Brexit is a good or bad idea. So, I mean, it's that normative end bit that's the issue for us rather than the evidence. I mean, would you classify yourself as a pro-European integration academic? And is that problematic if you would? I wouldn't classify myself because I actually find that language of pro and anti-EU as it's it's political. It's not, it's not academic. And I find that it's important when you look, the EU itself is a contested, even in academia, it's a contested, it's a contested entity. I mean, we struggle to define it. We struggle in terms of what it, the kind of political order it is. So there's a lot of questioning and contention about the EU. If you ask me, do I broadly think that the dynamic of European integration and political cooperation in Europe in the post-war era is a historically good or bad thing, then I will say it's a good thing. I will say that it has helped a continent that always struggled with fragmentation, managing diversity and conflict. It has helped it structure its relations that allow for deep, the management of what, what I call deep interdependence. So if that then, if I say I think that is a good thing, does that make me a pro-EU academic? Not at all. I mean, I think the more you know about the EU, the more you see its false problems and challenges. So I'm not sure that one can be normatively neutral on this issue. And a final question, looking forward, I mean, the UK is obviously no longer part of the European Union. Do you think uh, the Schumann Centre will con continue to collaborate with British academics as easily as before? Of course. Uh, one of the good things that emerged from the from the TCA is that the, the UK will continue to participate in the in Horizon Europe, the next round of research. So I would imagine that there will be not now what I'm not clear on is the impact of Brexit on those collaborative networks. Will, will there be some barriers that weren't there before? That I'm unsure of, because I do know when we were putting together the consortium that I'm leading now on differentiated integration, some of my continental partners did not like the fact that I had two British universities involved. And they sent me emails to suggest that perhaps this might damage our chances of funding. I said, well, as it happens to be differentiated integration and Brexit is an example of external differentiation, then we most certainly have to have Britain in the consortium, British universities in the consortium. So I'm not sure was that just because of the negotiations or what, I'm not sure what prompted that. Bridget, this was fascinating as always. We could go on for ages, but we probably shouldn't. But let me just thank you for taking the time to speak to us today and wish you all the very, very best. Thank you.